Good afternoon, everybody. I like saying good afternoon rather than good evening. Welcome to 62 Who Knew for our third show at our new time, 5 o'clock in the afternoon rather than 7 o'clock at night. We've uh, been looking to get to this time uh, for quite a, a long time period. And now we're here and we're very happy to do it. So millions of people can watch us and then they can tune in to, uh, <laughs> to Jeopardy. And, um, and what's the other one, John? Because <laughs> everybody watches Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. So we were losing millions of viewers. But now we're at the right time slot. Uh, we want to thank everybody for being here. I am going to give a little scenario or a synopsis of our show, but not as long as usual, because I want our two guests tonight to have as much time as possible. This is, uh, to me, going to be one of the most exciting shows we've had in the 18 months that we've been on the air. Uh, so just a little a synopsis of what 62 Who Knew is for our uh, newer viewers. Uh, this is what we are. Everybody, as they approach the age of 62, almost everyone, say about 99% of the public, uh, has the same questions. The questions that I have, I just turned 62 just a week ago. The questions my father had, their father had. As you approach the mid to upper 50s, getting to that 62, have I saved enough money? Should I pay off my house? Should I take my Social Security or should I defer to a future time for higher benefits? Do I need long-term care insurance? Do I still need my life insurance? And Medicare is around the corner. How about Medicare supplements? That's only a few years away. I mean, it just never stops. The diet, the this, the that. Every one of us, as we approach retirement, unless you're lucky enough to be in the top 1% of this world financially, every one of us, every generation, asks those questions and questions similar to that. Except for my generation, we have one more issue to deal with, one more hurdle to jump. And what is that? That is the double-edged sword of longer lifespans. Today in America, if you live to be 62 years old, you literally have a 50-50 shot of making it to 90. You have almost a 40% shot of making it to 90s and, and beyond. And quite frankly, with the medical breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs that are right around the corner that one of our guests tonight is involved in, that number is gonna be way into the hundreds. So the premise of our show is simple. At 62, who knew you could still have half the time you've been here ahead of you? Our fathers and grandfathers and their fathers didn't have that. And that's the premise for this show, because you want that 30 years to be with a high quality of life, not just financially, but mentally, physically, emotionally. And every week we do our best to bring on people to help those last 30 years be the best 30 years of your life. And uh, obviously the premise has worked because we have built up to an audience of a, a little more than 80,000 per week. But if I keep having guests like I have tonight, who have both been on before, but have never been on together, I think we're going to break that 100,000 mark maybe this week. So without further ado, let me welcome two people. Ladies first, Ms. Laura Banner, uh, the founder of Compassionate Education, a national platform uh, that deals with Alzheimer's and all types of dementia and how the family reacts and and just create some wonderful tools for them. Uh, Laura speaks throughout the country on this topic, and she's also founder of At the Window with Dementia, a podcast that has literally exploded 
nationally where she gives out information directly to people um, that, that is heartwarming and I think that's and, and helpful to them if they have someone in their family uh, with Alzheimer's or another type of dementia. So we'd like to welcome Laura back and at the same time we'd like to welcome back one of our favorite guests, Mr. Richard Enslein, who represents the Weissman Institute in Israel, who is, which is one of the, the greatest think, I guess for lack of better terms, Richard, scientific and medical uh, think tanks that have been involved in um, the invention and creation and the patenting of so many things that we use today uh, to help cure diseases and help us have a better life. So John, let's bring them both on if we could. And today we're going to talk about Alzheimer's, and uh, I'm going to really let uh, these two take over the show, quite frankly. And, um, you know, Laura, when I found out that uh, the uh, Weissman Institute was making such leaps and bounds, and not right there at a cure yet, uh, but making such leaps and bounds, there's got to be families that would just go, that would be so happy to know that maybe, just maybe there's a light at the end of this uh, very dark tunnel for their loved ones. So um, welcome back, both of you. I know I've been saying for a year, I want you both on at the same time, but between your world travel, your millions of fans, it's very hard to get them together. Um, you know, it's just unbelievable. Uh, so welcome, both of you. Thank you for being here. And uh, Laura, I'm really going to let you take over a little and, and, you know, and ask Richard some questions. Um, I might pipe in a little here and there, but believe it or not, the host is going to keep quiet for a while. So, um, Laura, I'd like you to talk to Richard about a little about what's going on in the Institute and maybe some of your personal uh, experiences with this would really um, shed some light and some comfort to a lot of our viewers. Take it away, okay. Laura. It's all you now. No My pressure. Let me say thank you so much for inviting me back. I've been looking forward to spending some time and getting to meet Richard and talk to him and understand what the Wiseman Institute does and the information that they currently have available and what they're working on. Um, so I am very excited to be able to talk to you, Richard. So without uh, wasting any more time with me just saying hello, let me dive in and ask you some questions if that's okay. So. I only know, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I only know of the Wiseman Institute through Michael. So could you tell us a little bit about the Wiseman Institute and specifically what their work is in terms of Alzheimer's and other types of dementia? Uh, thank you, Laura. Uh, the Wiseman Institute is one of the world's foremost basic science research institutes located in Rehovot, Israel. It has a graduate school that uh, offers Masters of Science, PhD, and postdoctoral degrees. It teaches in English. Uh, English is the universal science of lang uh, language of science. Um, but it's only the basic sciences, chemistry, biology, physics, computer mathematics, and um, Computer mathematics, I think I've named all five of them. Um, <laughs> and they, they work on the premise that they look to hire the smartest scientists they can find and let them have their academic freedom to follow the questions that they want to answer. 
So, Laura, if you're hired to in the chemistry department and you want to go into molecular genetics, they, they won't tell you, uh, Laura, you have to find the cure for breast cancer, but they'll rather ask you, Laura, what is your question? What question do you want to answer? What do you want to find? And when they hire you, they'll give you all of the uh, materials and the laboratories and the assistants to help you in your quest to find knowledge that's not been known before. So really basic science, the best way to describe it is finding new knowledge, things that we've never known about before in the universe. So and from this, the Institute have... has invented many, many things that uh, people use every day, as Michael was saying. So really, they are supporting the passion of their scientists. So, for example, if someone had the passion to explore and understand memory impairments, specifically Alzheimer's, and they went to the Wiseman uh, Institute as a scientist, they would have that freedom to go ahead and pursue that? Correct. They're not told that they have to do anything else if that's what their passion is. And they have the, the best uh, academic record uh, that they can find. They hire them to do just that. And people spend their lives there. People, uh, they live on campus, many of them. Uh, they walk to work. There is uh, almost 300 acres. There's 283, 243 buildings, excuse me, um, mm -hmm. that they work in um, through philanthropy and grants uh, that the scientists write and uh, from the government. They are given the best equipment and the best uh, available people to work with them to go find their answers. And one of the, one of the great reasons why the they've been so successful is they they like to have collaboration among the scientists. So if Laura, you wanted to work with a computer mathematician to uh, gather all the information you have to be able to sort it, you want to work with uh, uh, physicists, they encourage them to work together and they provide them the opportunity and the ability to do that. I think that's fantastic. Now, one of the challenges that I face in my clinical practice, as well as in my uh, consulting business and my, my private business, Compassionate Education, is although people like you and I know where to go to get information, the general public doesn't. So what I always tell people is you can go ahead and you can search anything on the internet and you can find any answer. The question is, is it quality information? Is it true science that you're getting? So check your source, um, because really, unfortunately, anyone can post anything. And if you are not a, um, a good consumer of information, you might not understand the difference between information or news that you're finding on Facebook versus something that you're finding that is coming out of the Wiseman Institute or the NIH or some other very credible scientific foundation. So is the Wiseman Institute publishing information that is accessible to the general audience, the general public, someone who maybe just recently got a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or maybe their family member did, are they able to get to the Wiseman Institute and research the, um, the information that has already been put out there, you know, the discoveries that have already been made? Yes, there's, there's a fabulous website um, 
um, both in the United States um, and at the Weizmann. The Weizmann website is weizmann.ac.il. Uh, it's in Hebrew and in English, so you can click on English. You'll be able to get everything. You can type in keyword searches for different types of diseases, and you'll be able to access information. But one of the best ways to get the information is how scientists around the world rate one another is what they publish, where they publish it, and how many times those articles are cited by other scientists and used in their research as the basis for their research. So, so there are great sites like about. Nature Magazine, Cell Magazine, where all the great scientists in the world strive to be published. And you can access that information of the latest discoveries. A lot of it is in scientific jargon, but they have places where, for people like myself, they dumb it down so that I can understand uh, the less scientific uh, jargon so we can make heads or tails of what they're saying. Oh, yes, great. that information, and you're right. On the, on the Internet, you find a lot of misinformation, and you find a lot of um, people who are self-promoting for profit. The Weizmann yeah. Institute is a not-for-profit. Okay. So they're, yeah. they're not in it to take your money. You if know, you it's, donate, it's so unfortunate. That's your freedom to choice to do. It's so unfortunate. So often um, I will have people come into my clinic practice, and out of sheer desperation, and I completely understand this, they will go ahead and buy any product. Half these products I've never even heard of. And so in the middle of a visit, I will go ahead and I'll Google it and try to understand, you know, what is this product promoting? What is, what are their active ingredients? Um, and they charge a lot of money for them. And it's unfortunate, but I think it comes out of the fact that there's such fear. And yes, we have a current pandemic of COVID-19 right now, but I often say and believe wholeheartedly that dementia and specifically Alzheimer's, that is a pandemic that so many people have no awareness of until they're thrown into the trenches. You can be going about your, your life and, and not have any firsthand experience with Alzheimer's or any other type of dementia. And then suddenly a family member is diagnosed with it. And instantly you have to become an expert because the caregiver, the spouse, the child, um, they are in the trenches. They are the eyes and ears for people like me, the provider, because they are going to tell when something is not right, when there is a, a change that is concerning versus just normal progression. And my, my personal passion is that there are so many people that are vulnerable to all of these products out in the market. You know, there's certain times in our life when we just expect that we are going to open up the checkbook, if that's not too passe these days, and yeah. we're going to spend money a little bit more than we would normally. And, and we expect to do that. The birth of a child, the wedding of a child, a funeral, unfortunately, maybe the holidays, or a devastating diagnosis, and there's so many. But as you know, dementia and Alzheimer's are right up there. They just don't get, in my opinion, so much of the publicity that so many other horrible diagnoses get. And so it takes people like you and me to go out there and to educate the public. And as, as I've mentioned, to Mike in the past, this is so personal for me because 
Alzheimer's and actually all the different dementias are rampant on both sides of my family tree. So I would be a little naive to think that I'm not at risk. You know, as we know, the number one risk factor is advancing age. So as Mike talks about this double-edged sword, we want to live a long life, but as we get closer to that longer life, that bigger number on our birthday, we are more at risk. And so for me, my passion stems out of seeing family members suffer and selfishly knowing that I might be one of those that suffer at some point. But my question to you is, where is your passion from? What, where does your interest in dementia and Alzheimer's come from, if you don't mind sharing that with me in the audience? Well, it comes from pretty much the same as yourself. Um, I unfortunately uh, was the caregiver of my mother, who ended up suffering and dying from end stages of Alzheimer's. And then I didn't mention this before, but at the same time I was the caregiver for my mother, I was also widowed with two children because my wife passed away from cancer. So I was the caregiver for the young generation and the old generation and had to work and provide at the same time. So I had it on both ends of the spectrum. And uh, I really feel for people who, who have to take care of uh, multiple family members. Um, um, I went through the, the end stages of Alzheimer's with my mother and she ended up uh, dying because uh, the Alzheimer's took away her ability to swallow. It took away the motion in her esophagus and uh, she couldn't swallow her food, she couldn't eat. So there had to be a decision made whether we were gonna let her go from not eating or were we going to put a feeding tube in her, which caused a lot of dissension among my siblings who lived out of town. So um, it causes a lot of dynamics in the family that are very unpleasant, uh, to yes. say the least, and, and, and more so unpleasant as to have to make that decision for your loved one um, who is dying from that awful disease. Yes, I'm sorry so, you went through that. But it comes from personal experience, and uh, one of the fallacies that is about Alzheimer's is that um, people think that uh, in our systems, in our immune systems, that um, we can't cross the, that membrane in the, we all have in the back of our necks, which is pretty much scientifically dumbed down to the blood-brain barrier, and a lot of people think that your blood can't get up into your brain and that there's, uh, we, we know that uh, Alzheimer's is a dysfunction of a healthy brain. So there's, there's a scientist at Weizmann by the name of Professor Michal Schwartz, who's worked on this for many, many years. And she came up with the, uh, the theory of neuroimmunology. And when she first brought this up, a lot of scientists thought in her, a lot of her colleagues around the world thought that uh, um, that this was not possible, that you couldn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And she found that from cerebrospinal fluid from your spine that you can cross the blood-brain barrier. And what she's working on is um, immunotherapy drugs that will supercharge your immune system to eventually melt the plaque off of your brain in the area 
that it's accumulating, uh, actually uh, stopping or reversing Alzheimer's. And she's gone and shown this in experiments that you can see online. And I like to describe one of them quickly to you. She shows an experiment uh, in stage one clinical trials with mice. And she takes young mice and they hate water and she puts them into a pool and there's like a diving board that they can find their way to get up out of the water. And once the young men, mice find the diving board, you, you put them back in, they swim right back to the board. They remember where it is. Now the old mice, you put them in, especially the ones that they, have, they know have mem memory impairment from tests, and they can't find the board. They'll swim around forever and never find the board. The ones who were treated with the immunotherapy, with supercharging their immune systems, um, they learn to find the board. You take them out of the water and put them back in, and they'll go right back to the board. They'll remember where that board was. So that was one of the first experiments that she did, and now she's done it in, in warm-blooded animals, and they're going to uh, into humans now. So That's it comes from really a basic idea of someone having, can I cross the blood-brain barrier? Can I, can I get to the brain? Can I treat the brain? Can I supercharge the immune system like we're curing cancer now with immunotherapy? We all read about immunotherapy cures for cancer in the newspaper. Yes. There are drugs out in the market that we read about called uh, Keytruda, Yaskarda, that are on the market now where they're taking your blood out of your body, centrifuging it. They're uh, taking the cancer cells in the Petri dish, treating them and putting it back into your body, and it's curing certain tumors, certain blood cancers for sure. So they're using the same supercharging the immune system as in cancer treatments to treat Alzheimer's, to treat you know, I know, I know there's a lot of work being done with gut health and the biome in your gut, um, the good bacteria versus the bad bacteria and keeping it in balance. And, you know, a healthy gut often translates to a healthy brain. So the immunotherapy, I think, is fantastic. Um, we are way overdue for some new drugs in this arena because the tools in my toolbox are very limited and very dated. Um, and so certainly it's better than not providing anything, but um, I, I hope to see some new drugs on the market soon, and that would be fantastic. I will definitely be looking up those studies. Well, you, you bring up a very interesting point that you and I did not discuss before the show. Um, the original studies on the gut microbiome come out of the Weizmann Institute. I would recommend everybody to go online and look up the studies of Professor uh, Iran Segal and Iran Elianoff. Iran Elianoff is a medical doctor who went back for his PhD to be a researcher. And uh, Iran Segal is a computer scientist. And long and short of it, um, they proved uh, in many papers that they've written, the first paper was on, um, on uh, artificial sweeteners, but they proved that the artificial sweeteners killed the good microbiota in your in your gut, and not only do they raise your blood glucose higher than real sugar when you test your, your blood sugar, it also causes dementia and hypertension. Otherwise, all those synthetics are good to put in your coffee. Um, um, but I'm being facetious. But uh, they've gone on now to show in studies recently that um, there are great interactions with the drugs we take uh, with our microbiome 
Uh, we can yeah. take uh, too much antibiotics. We can kill the good bacteria that we need in our, in our gut. And they've gone on to show um, and published in some of the uh, magazines that I told you about, especially in, in Nature and Cell, um, um, their articles have been published and, and uh, read by scientists all over the world. Um, so, yes, there's a tremendous interaction of the gut microbiome to our whole system. Yes. The gut, the, the DNA in the microbiota in your biome, your, your gut biota have more DNA than our bodies, and they interact with each other. So most people don't even know that the bacteria have DNA and have more DNA than we do. So there is an area of medicine called functional medicine that is gaining a lot of popularity. And functional medicine actually goes back and looks at the cause of the cause. So it's not just treating an issue. It is, for example, if you have reflux, heartburn, instead of looking at what foods you're eating that's causing it, they're looking at what is actually happening within the body prior to the food being ingested that results in heartburn or, or reflux. And so functional medicine, I actually make a lot of referrals to functional medicine. It is very time consuming what they do, but they are doing some significant um, work. And a lot of people, if they go to a provider, whether it's a physician, a nurse practitioner like myself or a physician assistant, unfortunately, if it doesn't fit into a category very nicely, we tend to think that it is um, something they call it super tentorial. Uh, Basically, it's in their head. There's a lot of diagnoses that we can't make sense of, and therefore, if we can't make sense of it, it doesn't exist because we don't like not being able to put a label on something and being able to treat something. So functional medicine is something that really interests me um, I actually, in a very modified way, promote it to a lot of my patients. And, you know, they're looking for what can they do? What can they do to slow down the progress of the disease? And as we've talked about, not only is there Alzheimer's, but there's other types. There is vascular dementia. There's Lewy body dementia. There is uh, Parkinson's-related dementia, alcohol-related dementia. There's so many. There's frontotemporal. Anyway, I could go on forever. I won't bore you with that. Bottom line is the idea of me sitting across from someone and their family and basically saying, this is what you have. I can do nothing. It's going to continue to decline. And eventually it will either take your life or make you at risk for something else that will take your life. That's not acceptable to me. And it sounds like it's not acceptable to the Wiseman Institute either. I am all about lifestyle. I'm about healthy eating. You might not know that if you go through my kitchen, but I believe in it. I just sometimes I'm not so good at practicing it myself. Um, but there's so much we can do. And so until there's a cure, there are things that we can do. And that is really what I am trying to get out in a message with Compassionate Education and with my podcast, At the Window with Dementia. Because people think that Dementia, or specifically Alzheimer's, is just something, you know, it, it's a death sentence. And I refuse to, to believe that. Excuse me, I refuse to believe that. I think there are things we can do. We may not be able to reverse it or even stop it yet. 
But in the meantime, we can certainly make an imprint on that journey that someone has as they go down the road with dementia or Alzheimer's. And I just think there needs to be more people like myself and like you and like, like Mike as well, who take the time to disseminate the information, to help people go through the weeds and say, you know, what's a scam? Because there's plenty of scams out there. What's real? How to really go through and dissect information and find quality information that has value and to make people good consumers of that uh, information and to help people be their best own advocate. In fact, today, um, I, I released my podcast on Tuesday. That was not intended as a plug, but I released my podcast on Tuesday. And no plug, it's okay. Okay, all right, there, I plugged it. Anyway, so one of the two topics that will go out tomorrow is what's your motivation? You know, we, we all say tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm going to start an exercise program. Tomorrow, I'm going to eat better. Tomorrow, I'm going to do this and then just whatever, you know, fill in the blank. My motivation is fear. Fear's powerful. You brought up a, you brought up a, good, a good topic that fit right into healthy eating was your lifestyle, which includes exercise. And oh. it's been proven scientifically and in basic research that we must exercise. Our bodies were made to move. And yeah. we have to exercise a certain amount of hours a day. I can't stress enough for cardiovascular health that it's been proven that you need to get out and walk and walk briskly and yes. walk a few miles every day. Just to sit behind our desks, we're killing ourselves. And, and that actually brings up a good point because with COVID and we are self you know, we are self-isolating, we're social distancing, we're limiting our activity. And if you look at the recommendations in terms of at least a vascular type of dementia, medication's not on the top of the list because we know it really just hopefully slows things down. But it's diet, exercise, and hydration with water. And we need to get things moving. We need to improve the, the blood flow to the brain. Um, so yes, 100%. We need to take ownership of our health because as many people may know, maybe probably more people don't know, by the time someone starts exhibiting symptoms, that disease has been in process for a couple of decades. Correct. Absolutely correct. And, and we, must, we must attack it early, and we, we must teach our children to eat correctly and also to set the example by exercising. Uh, we get up, uh, my, other, my wife and I, we get up in the morning early before the workday starts to go take our walk. Um, oh, and sweet. when you get up early, there's nobody else out on the street. So you don't have to worry about COVID. <laughs> so it's kind of the early bird gets the worm. And, it, and here in Florida, it's not too hot yet. So getting up real early and, and uh, seeing the sunrise is a really pretty good thing. And I like how you're doing that because if you put it to the end of the day, which I guess some people have to because just their lifestyle, but I don't know, a lot of things can interfere with something happening. Like I'm tired. It's hard to motivate off the couch. And for me, I'm doing a lot of telehealth. So a lot of my day is sitting in front of a computer, sitting on a chair, and the idea of getting up and getting moving, where in theory, that's fantastic. In reality, I might not have the energy to do it. So I like that you're doing it first thing in the morning. That's great. And uh, and if you live in Florida, swim. 
Yes. Great cardiovascular exercise, and as you age, it doesn't hurt your, your ankles and your knees. You know what's an so. interesting thing? You're talking about the cardiovascular. Oftentimes, people are surprised when, when we look at imaging together, and any time that I have someone in my office and they have imaging, especially if it's an MRI, because the detail is just so much better than on a CAT scan, I will show them what I see on their MRI, and they're shocked. What's interesting to me is if someone went to a cardiologist and they were told that they have plaque on the vessels, they're not so shocked. But then when I tell them the chance of having issues isolated to one part of your body, the vessels around your heart, but not the vessels in your brain, unlikely. And that would explain all the things that we start seeing. So it all, it, it's intertwined it's not in a vacuum. Like you're saying, you can't just go ahead and we haven't even talked about positively stretching your brain and neuroplasticity, but you've got to tick, you know, check off all the boxes. You've got to be eating well, you've got to be physically active and you've got to be positively stressing your mind because it's important for those connections to strengthen, not to, to weaken. Um, and the analogy that I use all the time is, Although the brain is an organ, it's not a muscle. If someone was an athlete and they were training for a triathlon and they're running a lot and they have those nice big calf muscles and then suddenly for whatever reason they can't run anymore, what's going to happen to that muscle? It's going to shrivel up. It's going to atrophy. It's going to atrophy. Exactly. And the same thing with the brain. You have people who have worked their whole life. You know, maybe they've punched the time clock every day that they needed to for decades and now they're retired. And I find that there's two types of people. There's the one who says, I've worked my whole life to earn the right to do what I want. And what I want to do is I want to sit on the couch and I want to channel surf. That's one type of person. The other type of person says, I've worked my whole life to be able to do what I want with my time. And what I want to do is all the things I didn't get to do because I had to go punch the clock. I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to learn a new activity. I'm going to go and travel. And that person, they do so much better from a cognitive standpoint because they're stimulating their brain. And so selfishly, a lot of what I do, yes, I do it because I want to impart information. I want to help people. But I'm doing it because I'm stressing my brain because I want my brain to be strong. And I want those connections to not atrophy. So... Are you we can do the same thing the scientists are doing. We can read and find new knowledge. <laughs> we can read travel brochures. We can read novels. We can read nonfiction. But you must read. You must continue using your brain. It's another form of the muscle. You have to use it. Use it you or have lose to it. Use it. Use it or lose it. It's so yep. true. It, you know, you see a lot of women, they have young children, they stay at home in the early ages of their children. And we start talking this vocabulary that are, you know, it's like childlike, we use child friendly words. And then they go out in social environments. And they say, excuse me, I want to go to the potty. Not really adult language, right? It's because <laughs> they have not been using adult words, and they have lost that art, they need to go back and they need to practice. They get there, they do fine. I know it happened to me, it happens to a lot of women. You know, you ask, it's very, very common. But the brain needs to be stimulated. And if it's not stimulated, it gets weak and we forget. 
and we struggle and we can't retrieve. And then when you can't retrieve, anxiety kicks in. And what does anxiety do? It pushes that word farther away. And what does depression do? Depression just makes everything worse. And so you're right, especially in this time of COVID-19 and lack of human interaction and socialization, we have to create ways to stimulate our brain and keep those neurons firing. Yep, it's reading, reading and exercising uh, for me. Um, I, t I tell you, there's another, another new, when you talk about new knowledge, there's another topic I wanted to hit into, and that's uh, stem cell research and the knowledge that, that's come, come out of that whole field. Um, there is a type of, of stem cell, and I don't want to maybe get too technical, maybe I will, but all your cells in your body have the ability to become one of 220 different cells in your body. And there's a way now today, um, there was a Japanese scientist that won the Nobel Prize in 2006 um, for being able to create a pluripotent stem cell, which is a, an embryonic stem cell from an adult stem cell. And that only stayed alive a very short time. And there are labs at the Weizmann Institute now that can keep those cells alive for much longer periods of time. It takes them eight days to take your skin cell, erase it, make it a pluripotent stem cell, and then reprogram it to be any of the 220 cells that we have in our body. So what will this do? Will you be able to grow a new organ and not have to worry about transplant rejection because it's your own skin cell, it's your own DNA. There is no rejection factor. Can you grow neurons and replace it in the area of your brain where, where you're not producing neurons with dopamine, which is causing Parkinson's disease? Will you able to be able to make this neuron become um, an islet cell in your pancreas that stopped making insulin and now you can put this, teach this cell to become an islet cell, to make insulin? What are the ramifications for type one, type two diabetes? Oh yeah. So I'll tell you something interesting. I have two patients in my practice right now who are getting stem cell um, infusions. I don't know where they go. They will not tell me because they're afraid. They're, the person who's doing it, I don't, I don't know what the parameters are. They're afraid. I think they're afraid that it may be shut down. They may be afraid that the competition for other people to get in and get the stem cells may be too great. Bottom line is they have Parkinson's, maxed out on meds, have not had the deep brain stimulator surgery, but maxed out on meds, went, got stem cell infusions off meds. You would never know that they have Parkinson's. I, if I hadn't seen it myself, I wouldn't believe it. I would think someone was exaggerating. The only reason I bring that up right now is because I agree with you. The, the possibilities are far beyond anything we can even think about right now. It's fantastic. And I, I hope that all of the research comes to fruition in my lifetime because I would love to see all the things that they can help with stem cell. Well, uh, I think and I'm guessing here, but one of the reasons why your patients don't want to tell you where they're going, what they're doing, it could be uh, 
embryonic stem cells from uh, from cord blood, and uh, in some places it's not legal. And there's ethnic uh, there's uh, ethical questions about when you get into life and and the placenta and where the blood comes from. But if it's coming from your own skin cell and it's being reprogrammed, it's your skin cell. It's your cell. We're not taking it from... You're just repurposing your skin. From the, from the umbilical cord. We're not taking it from a baby. Yes. We're creating it from you. There are no ethical questions there right. with You're that a kind of, of research. So this is, again, when I, when I opened up with finding new knowledge. I asked the, the last president of the Weizmann Institute, who just retired about a year and a half ago, I asked him, how much of the world's knowledge do you think that we know? Knowledge of the universe. And he blew me away by saying, probably only 4%. That means 96% of the knowledge that's out there to be learned hasn't been learned yet. So we go and increase our knowledge and increase our brains and then use this for society. Where can we go as a people? So to me, it's education, 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 read, learn, and practice. Richard, Richard, if you would, we still we're doing good on time, um, but you brought up some things a couple of weeks ago that you know brought us into the realm of Stephen Hawking's. Uh, well, of course, in my realm, that would be Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek. You were talking about quantum physics, quantum mechanics, quantum computer technology. I mean, this is 23rd century stuff. Um, that is happening in Israel right now. And I tried to explain it to Laura after the show, but ultimately failed, I'm sure, miserably. If you could talk just a little bit about that. Laura, this is incredible what they're doing. Well, um, the, the, world, the world of quantum physics runs on different laws. So just to give the audience a quick, a quick uh, little physics one-on-one, we, we all took ninth grade general science and we learned about solids and liquids and gases and in ninth grade, we all boiled water and it became a gas. It steamed up. Yeah. Um, that's the laws of matter. But it, it, those laws do not work in the quantum world, the quantum world, the world of atoms. So the laws of physics as we know it in solid state matter or gases or liquids are not the same laws in the quantum world. So very quickly, I was in... Uh, last year in, in laboratories that are working on quantum gates, quantum computers. They're working on being able to send information on atoms. I've seen atoms charged electrically, and they take pictures of it because it's, it's uh, magnified tens of thousands of times, and you can actually see the atom suspended in a little box where you're viewing, and they can put information on those atoms and make the information travel on photons. Photons are beams of light. Light travels at 187,000 miles a second. Think about the information that you'll be able to put on atoms and send it that quickly. Mm. So I jokingly said to the scientist who showed me his laboratory, I took my phone and I said, Scotty, beam me up. He said, we're working That's on that too. So, yeah. Yeah. so there's, yeah. there's whole new worlds out there that we don't know. Companies in America like uh, Microsoft and Google, they're in the race for quantum computing because whoever gets the quantum computer first will be able to break any encryption 
because you'll be able to solve the most difficult algorithms that protect the encryptions. Uh, China is working on it, and Israel knew it had to get into the game also. Um, so it's going to be militarily very important. It's going to be very important as um, the knowledge of the computer world expands. I asked the scientist, how big is my computer going to be? And he took out the key fob of his car. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah. that amazing? Stay tuned, because when we, when we laugh about Star Wars and Gene Roddenberry's great series uh, on TV and Star Trek, um, it's not too far off. It's what, no, it it's what the new knowledge and what these people can conceive. And, and these are a great scientist from from uh, from all around the world that are doing this. Um, but it was a thrill to be in those labs. I've got pictures of the inside of those labs. Uh, and, and the scientists that you deal with and talk to there are just absolutely amazing. And what? you're basically talking about young people in there, when I say young, in their mid-30s to mid-40s. It's, a, was, it's a whole new world that the next generation is going to bring for us. And it's exciting because something. one of the things that I talked about with the president of the Institute is about as we get all this new knowledge about our body and what the cells do and what the stem cells do, and we get all this knowledge on everyone's uh, uh, genome, enabled now to even splice the genome like we splice 35 millimeter film. And now I'm talking about CRISPR, which I'll stop here for a second. And we're, we're talking about all this new knowledge. We need to have stronger, faster computers to put all this knowledge in to be able to take it out and be able to bring it to someone's uh, medical records that are put into the computer and then be able to match electronically what your health records show as to what then the doctor is going to to uh, be able to uh, prescribe for you. So now we're talking about personalized medicine, medicine for your genome, medicine for your cell type, uh, medicine for your blood type. Um, it's all going to change. It's all gonna go very, very personalized. And what we're seeing now is just the tip of the iceberg. I can't even imagine what's coming. I, I probably won't live long enough to see it, but I know it's coming. You had mentioned we're something. We're gonna treat people more, much differently than we used to. It's not, it's not one size fits all for the treatment. So as you know in your practice that people have different genealogies. They have different genes that are causing different diseases. There's a gene that causes early onset Alzheimer's. There's a gene that causes uh, the BRCA gene that causes breast cancer at a certain time. Well, be able to think about being able to take the genome, like 35 millimeter film that we used to have on the editing floor, and you cut the film, and yeah. then you'd splice it back together. Well, that's what they're going to be able to do with your genome. That's going on now. Amazing. So they'll be able to take out the bed. It's just amazing where it's all going to go, and it's all coming from new knowledge. Well, I, I just I can't tell. I wish I was are. a young person again. I would tell all the people, get all the knowledge that you can. Read everything you can. Get all the education that you can. Don't yeah. stop. You, no, you, you're great, at the... Great. You're at, the, you're at the, the edge of the pool. Jump in the pool. Jump in the pool. Yep. A hundred percent. And But like you're saying, people need to be their own advocate. You need to start digging for information. Do not stop with your healthcare provider. 
Trust me, do not stop with people like me. Keep pushing forward. Bring information to people like me. Challenge the information that you're given because that's how we get innovation and that's how we have discovery by questions because it's a team effort. The days of the before nurse practitioners and physician assistants, the days of the physician here and the patient here, they're gone. That's ineffective. It needs to be a team. Everyone needs to be present and participating for the same common goal. And so you have to ask questions, you have to challenge. It's not disrespectful. And I know for some of the seniors, it may feel uncomfortable because that's not how they were raised to question, but that's what we want. We want the dialogue. We need the dialogue. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. I can tell a personal story that I don't like telling on, maybe I'm old enough now to tell it. Um, 19 years ago, I was diagnosed with bilateral renal cell carcinoma. I'll put that out of medical terms. It's cancer in both your kidneys at the same time. And I was basically told to put my affairs in order, but I did not take that first diagnosis and take that, um, take that as gospel. And I did my own research and long story short, I found a doctor and a team of doctors who operated on me for 10 hours seven different doctors and they removed the cancer they took out my my right kidney in its total and they partially took out part of my left kidney i live with half a kidney now for 19 years and i live a normal life just gave up certain foods and drinks and medicines Congratulations. to your point laura don't take the don't take the first opinion because the first opinion i would have just bought my own grave yes Agreed. And, you know, people, I think, are uncomfortable asking for a second opinion. But I want to say it's something like 40%, maybe even a little higher, of the second opinion actually comes up with the correct diagnosis. So what happens? You know, the, the, the downstream effect of people accepting that incorrect diagnosis, tragic, absolutely tragic. So good for you for taking ownership and, and going ahead and advocating for yourself, and I'm glad you're healthy. No, thank Absolutely. you, but Muzzle it's, um, Muzzle people shouldn't give up. There's, there's, no, there's no reason to give up. Agreed. The full of people who give up. So that's right. you just keep going. And that's what made me realize that I had to find more and more new knowledge and, and, and to explore the world of science as deeply as I have, because the answers are there. You just have to go find them. That's right. And maybe How long have you been with it? the Weitzman Institute, Richard? 13 years. So and and yeah. I only regret it wasn't 20 years earlier. Yeah, it, it's got to be uh, staggering to constantly be on the cusp of what has happened in the last two decades in the Weitzman Institute. It's got to be. What's going to come? Because uh, when I speak to the uh, older scientists and they mm -hmm. introduce me to the new younger scientists, they tell me they're smarter. They're brighter than we ever were. Wait till you see what they're going to bring to the table on the on the foundation that we built for them. They will go even higher. And to hear the people that are are Nobel laureates speak that way is amazing. That they don't talk about themselves. They talk about the young people and the generation that's coming behind them and and helping them to reach the next level. Um, very very humble people that uh, are in this science business. 
Well, as you've, as you've said so many times, and I've repeated it, you know, when you take the politics out of it and you just work with science, you tend to have some great answers and some great people. And the whole premise of the Weizmann Institute, and like you, Laura, I had no idea what it was until uh, my, uh, uh, my friend slash brother slash mentor slash confident Peter Gelbwax introduced me to it. I had no idea what it was. And to even know that there was a place like this, let alone in Israel, but in the world, um, making such discoveries, not for years, but for decades. How long, eight, how long is old is the Institute? 80 well, years they old? Start, it started in 1934. Chaim Weizmann was a world-renowned chemist in, in England, originally born in Russia. Uh, he invented smokeless gunpowder for the, for the British in World War I. He was the father of industrial fermentation. He had many patents on his own. And when he started the Institute with the help of the C family, who owned the Mark and Spence department store, and the family's still involved uh, in England, uh, their son, Daniel C, tragically died, and they set up one building for him in Israel. He chose Rehovit because it was where they had orange groves, they had water. And today, it's evolved to what it is. And in 1949, as Weitzman was the first president of the state of Israel and the first president of the Weitzman Institute, the family agreed to rename the Seif Institute the Weizmann Institute of Science. So it's been there since 34. It's been its current name since uh, 49. And I can tell you that eight of seven of the top 25 selling drugs in the world by revenue were invented at the Weizmann Institute and licensed to major pharma companies. So Isn't you don't amazing? know that it's a Weizmann drug because it may say Johnson & Johnson or Abbott Labs or you know, AbbVie or or uh, Amgen on the label, but the patents were from the Weizmann Institute of Science, and they still, they're still coming uh, very strong. They're averaging uh, being granted two patents a week. Not applying we're losing, you, we're losing you, Richard. I see your right ear. Okay. <laughs> okay. You see me now? They're averaging uh, being granted two patents a week. Two patents a week. That's, that's incredible. And so many people, yeah. Go ahead, Laura. I'm sorry. But there are other places in the world that also are like Weizmann. The Rockefeller University in New York is a basic science research institute. has more Nobel Prize winner than any place in the world. You have the really? Pasteur in France, the Max Planck in Germany. Those are the basic science research institutes in the world. The Karolinska in Sweden and the Weizmann. And I would say those are the top six from year to year. And you have great scientists. And what's really heartening for me with COVID is the scientists are talking to each other openly. They're not waiting to patent or publish. They're doing open science research and sharing their information. So I think, again, even for COVID, the, the answer will come from science. From where? I don't know. But it will come from science, not from politics. It will come from science. Laura, I'm thinking a family trip to Israel and a tour of the Weizmann Institute. What do you think? I think it'd be great. I think we have a tour guide already. That'd be a nice trip. Richard, you want to come? I can't wait to go back. I can't wait to let, to let me get on a plane. Family trip. All right, let's do it. Um, look, with about 30 seconds to go, I mean, we could go on like this forever. This is going to be part of the new podcast as well. Uh, I want to thank you both for being here. Uh, again, for me, who has certain fears, as you know, Laura, uh, as I get older, um, to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, of course, the three things I have to do uh, that I just learned today are the three things I'm worst at. Um, so that's a problem. That's given me some fear and anxiety. Um, but with six seconds to go, 
thank you very much for being here. Love you both. And I hope to have you back soon. Have a great day. Thanks. Good night. Good night.